Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Rebecca Sear. She is a demographer and anthropologist from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where she teaches demography and she also researches human reproductive behavior from an evolutionary perspective. And today we're going to talk about uh, basically human demography, child rearing and the idea of the nuclear family, life history theory, the evolutionary social sciences, and also a little bit about some issues with national IQ databases. So Dr. Sear, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for the invitation. So, uh, demography. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what demography is about? I mean, what are the kinds of questions that you can tackle through human demography? What are the kinds of aspects of human society that, that we can get a better understanding of by studying demography? So demography is about populations and particularly population change over time and how populations come to be as they are and how they change over time through the three processes of fertility, mortality and migration. So it's clearly a really big subject. Um, it's been described as sex, death and indicate sex, death and passion wrapped in indicators. So it's a topic that is of great um, personal significance to many people. But things like mortality, fertility, migration, they're also of huge social and political significance. So demography is really important for pretty much everything you can think of about human societies, uh, human health, human um, how societies are structured, who we interact with. All of this is affected by demography. And quite a lot of things that we do within society then affects demography too. So it's a really big, really important, really exciting subject. And so this is something that we'll come back to later on in the interview, but what do things like archaeology and life history theory add to the picture of human demography? So what both archaeology and evolutionary approaches to demography broadly defined, including but not limited to life history theory, what they do is add a long-term perspective to demography. So demography is a, is a discipline that's subject studied rather by many people because it is so important both personally and politically. Most demographers focus more or less on the present though. What archaeology and evolutionary theory can do is to give us that long-term perspective and understand long-term change in human demographic patterns. Um, I wrote a paper a few years ago with an archaeologist Stephen Shannon um, and his uh, research on the, the demography of ancient populations suggests that human populations, although they have gradually grown over time, or rather the human population, it's gradually grown over time since we evolved a couple of hundred thousand years ago, it hasn't done so in a nice linear fashion. There have been booms and busts in human population, um, likely because um, of the way our life history at a species level um, allows us to capitalize on good times essentially um, during periods of um, uh, resource access human populations can grow quite rapidly but that does mean that sometimes then mortality crisis will knock human populations back and reduce population size but human populations then recover from those mortality crises quite quickly and human population grows again so we have these boom and bust cycles which may be because we have evolved life history 
strategy again at the species level which um, is very good at coping with environmental stochasticity this may be one of the reasons why humans are so successful as a species um, we're quite good at, at buffering ourselves against the environment meaning that our population has grown really very substantially over the last couple of hundred thousand years last year we hit a population global population size of eight billion people that that's a lot of people on the planet at a species level we're really successful uh, and is human demography something that we can predict? I mean, uh, how well can we predict the future of human demography and how it will vary? Demographers spend a lot of time doing population projections, essentially predicting what's going to happen in the future. Because demographic projections are important for society, they um, let us understand how many schools, how many hospitals we're going to need in the future. So it's something that demographers spend a lot of time doing. Um, and they're generally quite good at it. They can predict to some extent demand for things like hospitals, schools, and so on. But um, it, predicting demography gets harder the further you want to project um, patterns into the future. Um, also, migration is something that is quite difficult to predict because it's subject to so many different factors. Fertility and mortality on the whole are a little bit easier to predict. Um, but nevertheless, it is difficult to, to project with a great deal of accuracy what population trends are going to be like into the long term. However, demographers do it quite regularly. Uh, current projections, for example, are that the human population is probably going to grow until almost 10 billion, maybe a little bit less, somewhere near the end of the 21st century and then start to decline. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, in our first interview, we talked a lot about child rearing, the role that uh, fathers play in that, uh, the effects, or I mean, some of the effects that people have uh, hypothesized would occur if uh, in the absence of a father and all of that. So, I would like like to ask you now, where do you think the idea of the nuclear family that is so common in the West, for example, comes from? So there is an idea that's quite popular uh, in many communities in the West, in the, the public imagination, also many academic communities, that the traditional human family is the nuclear family, where you've just got mum, dad, kids, uh, mum and dad are entirely responsible for raising the kids and there's also usually quite a sharp division of labour in that so-called so traditional family where the father goes out to work and the mum stays at home looking after the kids. From an anthropological and historical perspective that family is not a traditional family at all. If you look throughout history and across cultures most people live in some kind of version of an extended family. Parents are not solely responsible for raising kids. They got a lot of help from other family members and other individuals sometimes as well. There's also not such a stark division, gender division of labor. This um, particular vision of the nuclear family seems to have um, emerged particularly with the industrial revolution. So starting around the middle of the 19th uh, century, but really become um, solidified in the popular imagination, maybe just after the Second World War. And I think this is more to do with ideological reasons than, than actual evidence that suggests the nuclear family um, has been a, a long-standing way of family organization in our species. Um, the Industrial Revolution created a division between the um, private and the public sphere. So work moved into the public sphere. 
previously a lot of work had been done within the family. Uh, a lot of people were working on subsistence farming or other subsistence activities where work is shared amongst the whole family. But it's there's no, no real division between home and work. You know, you live where you work. With the rise of um, work outside of the home, work then becomes a, something that happens in public, whereas domestic activities happen in private within the home. That uh, separation into the public and private sphere, I think, affected ideas about the gender division of labour. Uh, it was typically men who took advantage initially of paid work, though not entirely, that's a bit simplistic, um, but it was particularly men who took advantage of paid work that pushed women into the private sphere where they hadn't really been before. Um, uh, along with the Industrial Revolution came changes in demography, fertility and mortality declined, families became smaller, people migrated more, they moved away from family. That meant a breaking down of these extended families, so it was uh, more difficult for people to get help from their kin in raising children. So I think the idea of the nuclear family was influenced by factors that um, happened during the 19th century. Then in the 20th century, um, there were more changes in work and family life. For example, during the Second World War, women did move into the workforce, the paid labour force, a lot more because men were fighting at the front. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of the Second World War, Western governments wanted to get women out of the, the paid labour force in order to make sure there were jobs for returning servicemen. So there were media campaigns essentially saying things like a woman's place is in the home in order to create this ideology to get mm -hmm. women back into the home. So these ideologies about what the family looks like, and in particular the importance of the nuclear family, I think became very prominent, particularly after the Second World War, where governments were promoting this agenda. It also coincided with the rise of a lot of popular media. So you have you know, media narratives of fictional families that are in this nuclear form. And in that period, um, after the Second World War, you also get a lot of academic disciplines growing um, social science um, academic disciplines and it may be that people in those academic disciplines just looked around at the current ideology saw this emphasis on the nuclear family and um, believed that was sort of what the traditional family has always looked like mm -hmm. so to, to summarize very quickly that that isolated nuclear family it's a very rare family form worldwide but we have this idea in the west that it's traditional but this is really to do with relatively recent shifts in how human societies have organized themselves and also ideological factors feeding into that as well. Mm -hmm. So just for the audience to get a better idea of what we're talking about, what you are talking about when you say, for example, that when we look into anthropology and ethnographic studies and, uh, for example, contemporary traditional societies and also historical societies, uh, that what people have is more of an extended family instead of a nuclear family. Uh, what other people tend to participate in child rearing in traditional societies and historically? Throughout most of human history, uh, a lot of relatives, other relatives apart from the mother and father would have been involved in childcare. Mm -hmm. So the way human life history is organized, we have quite long post-reproductive periods at the end of life and quite long pre-reproductive periods sort of in the, the teenage years um, and in childhood. That means that there are quite a lot of potential helpers around who don't have young kids of their own who can help mothers and fathers raise children. So a lot of childcare is done by grandparents, particularly grandmothers, and also younger children. So either older siblings um, of a small child or, or their cousins, other relatives. 
But childcare isn't entirely confined within the family. Um, a lot of hunter-gatherer societies, although families tend to live together, they also live in communities with many other individuals around. There's some research, for example, on the importance of play groups more generally in terms of looking after young children. So um, all of the kids in a camp will sort of get together and, and play, but there are people who help mothers and fathers raise children. And if you look at modern contemporary industrialized societies, you get a lot of help from non-kin too through paid child carers, um, private um, child minders, but also schools. Schools function as, as allied carers too. Schools are a place where parents can leave their children to be carefully looked after and also trained in the kind of things that they need to, to learn to become um, productive adults. So many different people are involved in, in, as allo carers in human societies. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you this question because earlier when I asked you about the nuclear family you mentioned conservative ideology and I guess that uh, stemming from that ideology people also make further claims about for example the absence of the father and uh, not having uh, people of uh, both sexes or, uh, uh, doing childcare at home and stuff like that, then some of those claims might be at least to some extent harmful. So do children really need to have both parents present at home uh, and for a, uh, for a parent of each sex to be there for them to develop uh, properly? If you look throughout history, kids have grown up in a variety of different family forms Many of those family forms have involved a heterosexual couple, mother and father, um, looking after kids. They do not always involve that kind of family structure, not least because mortality rates were higher in the past. So father absence was likely uh, not common, but it certainly happened in the past just because adult mortality rates would have been a little bit higher. Not all societies also have lifelong relationships between mothers and fathers uh, of offspring. Um, so divorce or parental separation has also not been that uncommon throughout human history. So it is entirely possible for children to thrive in a variety of different family forms. Some of the ideology about the nuclear family has been, as you say, co-opted by um, conservative groups who are now very deliberately pushing this ideology of a particular family form, a heterosexual couple, um, yeah, where the mother and father have complete control over their children and typically there's no recognition of other help um, from others as well. Um, for example, there's an organisation called Agenda Europe, which is a, an association of organisations which are pushing this very conservative model of what they call the traditional family, but it very much isn't the traditional family. They're also anti-abortion, anti-LGBT plus rights and so on. So the ideas about the nuclear family, I think they stem from certain ideologies around the middle of the 20th century, but now they are being very actively used in certain conservative right-wing ideologies as well to promote a vision of, of the family which is anthropologically inaccurate and likely not to lead to positive outcomes for men, women or children. So this is something that we got a little bit into in our first interview, but in the case of uh, father, uh, father absent households, is there always acceleration of poverty? I'm asking you that because, I mean, sometimes you also hear that narrative, again, coming usually from conservative people, uh, that poverty is mostly explained by 
the absence of the father from home and, uh, I mean, supposedly effects that derive from that. But to what extent is that true? I think that gets causation the wrong way around. Um, if you look at societies like the US, for example, there are a relatively high proportion of families that, that don't have fathers present all of the time. Mm -hmm. It's important to note that children who grow up in those so-called father absent uh, households don't necessarily lack a father or a father figure from their lives. It may be that the father isn't co-resident, but is still investing in them and um, interacting with them a lot. Um, so those so-called father absent households, they're not all, always the ones in which children don't have any kind of father or even their own father present, although that is true in some cases. But the idea that father absence accelerates poverty is likely getting the causal arrow the wrong way around. Um, there are reasons why uh, families in poverty will find it difficult to model that that nuclear family model. Um, you know, if male unemployment is low, if male incarceration rates are high, there will be simply fewer men around for mm -hmm. women to marry. Um, it's more likely that poverty leads to a family form where the father isn't always present in the home. It's not that father absence causes poverty. Mm -hmm. So one last question about the myth of the nuclear family before we move on to other topics. Does, or can this belief in the myth of the nuclear family have adverse uh, health consequences or other kinds of consequences, not just for children, but also for mothers and fathers? Yes, I don't think it's an ideal family form at all for either mothers, fathers or children um, because it's focused very much on the individual. It, it loses this idea that we're a cooperative species, essentially. One of our fundamental traits is that we're a really cooperative species. We can't survive on our own. We need a lot of help, a lot of support and interactions with other individuals. The nuclear family, essentially, the, this model of the nuclear family suggests that Mothers should be raising kids entirely alone without help. You know, there's a lot of condemnation of mothers who put their children in childcare, for example, from certain quarters. This family model says that fathers should be able to provide entirely for their whole families without any help at all, and that children um, develop best in a family where they only have access to mainly the mother, but also the father when he's at home. That is going to create a lot of stress on the father. It's very difficult to entirely provision, you know, pay for a family without any help at all. Um, it's not likely to be good for the mother because we are a cooperatively breeding species. Mothers have always had support in raising kids. Uh, there was one study, um, I think, in the UK that showed that I think it was around a third of new mothers spent eight hours a day alone at home only with their, their infants. For a cooperatively breeding species, that does not sound like an ideal environment for mothers. Mothers need support in that, that stage when they have newborns. Um, to leave mothers alone with children seems like a you know, really a form of torture for a cooperative primate like our own. Uh, and we know that rates of postnatal, postnatal depression are relatively high in some Western populations, maybe related to these ideals of, of mothers who can cope alone, which um, counteracts you know, 200,000 years of human history. There are also ideas that this family form is best for the kids because it means that the kids have the exclusive attention of their mum and also attention from their father. But again, if we're a cooperatively breeding species, we are evolved to grow up um, being raised by multiple individuals. Uh, Sarah Hurdy, uh, in, who has promoted these ideas about humans as cooperative breeders very much, 
um, says it's quite concerning if children are going to be raised in these nuclear families without a lot of allo carers, because children need interactions with many other individuals in order to develop the social, cognitive, emotional skills that they need to do well in adulthood. And if they're not getting that, um, uh, she has a quote that's something like, um, uh, empathy and compassion may fade away as does sight in cave dwelling fish. She, she said, you know, these um, nuclear families are really not ideal for children either, although there's a narrative out there that you know, having your mother's exclusive attention is good for children. But no, kids need interactions with many other individuals too. So I don't think this isolated nuclear family model with this very stark division of labor is really an ideal one for anyone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, I mean, basically, we're also putting a huge load on the backs of just uh, two people, right? The mother and the father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so uh, when I asked you about the nuclear family, at a certain point, you talked a little bit about gender division of labor and how it developed across, I guess, the 20th century. At least you gave that an, as an example after the Second World War and things like that. So. Um, do we know how gender division of labor develops in human societies? Do we have a good understanding of that? If you look across human societies, there's always, pretty much always, some kind of gender division of labor. If you look at hunter-gatherer societies, what men and women are doing is typically not identical. Women do tend to spend more time on childcare, for example, although men certainly do childcare as well. Women tend, however, to combine childcare with subsistence activities. This idea that women's role is entirely in the home and has been throughout history, only doing childcare is absolutely false. There is really no evidence for that whatsoever. But the kinds of subsistence activities that women are doing is often not exactly the same as what men are doing. Sometimes it is, there will be um, some things that men and women do and they do together, but also there's a division of labor um, there is an idea that men are hunters and women are gatherers, but that's a little bit too simplistic. It is the case that men often focus on hunting, but they will also do some gathering. Women also do hunt. It's not the case that women never hunt. But what the kinds of subsistence activities that women will do typically are those that are relatively compatible with childcare because they are more responsible for um, childcare than men are. So we do see these gender divisions of labor across human societies, but they're often not as stark um, as uh, contemporary ideas about gender, gendered division of labor often are. And do we know if when we see those differences, when we see that gender division of labor, if it stems from uh, sex differences, like for example, physical or behavioral sex differences, or if it's something that comes from, for example, ecology? It's likely to be both because women are doing more, more childcare. There are likely to be some biological aspects to, to gender division of labor. But when you look at um, what men and women are doing across societies, it is also hugely variable. So it clearly responds to ecology as well um, and also cultural factors as well. Um, just to use a simplistic example in Western society, I spent some time in Germany after my PhD. In Germany, I was surprised to note that women were often um, tram drivers and delivered the post. It hadn't occurred to me before moving to Germany that in the UK, tram drivers and um, postal delivery workers are often men. That's a purely cultural difference, um, but it, it just emphasizes that there are many different reasons why you get gendered division of labor. Um, 
biological differences maybe in there in some traditional societies, but when you get to contemporary societies where fertility is relatively low, those kinds of gender divisions in terms of occupation can, can really break down. There are a lot of cultural factors um, and ecological factors in some societies too, making a difference. Mm -hmm. And does this gender division of labor influence fertility in any way? So there is an idea in the demography of high-income countries that um, in high-income countries at the moment, fertility is quite low. Uh, that is likely at least partly to be due to the difficulty that women have in combining uh, having a family and going out to work because of this division between the public and the private sphere. Contemporary workplaces typically outside of the home this creates uh, an issue with, with how to deal with childcare, not just for mothers, but fathers as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems that in societies that have, um, that provide more support for allowing uh, parents to combine having a family with going out to work, fertility is a little bit higher. And one idea in particular is that um, where men are more involved at home, then that allows women to have slightly higher, or families to have slightly higher fertility because it becomes easier for families to then combine the private and the public sphere uh, paid work with, with raising a family, a family. And there is some evidence for this. Um, again, it's a little bit simplistic, but there's a little bit of evidence suggesting that where men are doing more housework, for example, fertility may be a little bit higher in those couples, although the evidence is a little bit variable on that. Um, another piece of evidence um, relevant here is that if you look across Europe, for example, in countries where um, men work shorter hours, there's less of an educational gradient in fertility. It's often the case that more highly educated women have lower fertility, perhaps because it's more difficult for them to combine the type of work that they do with childcare. But in societies where men work shorter hours, that educational gradient in fertility seems to disappear. And it may be that that results from excuse me, the case where men are contributing more at home that allows women to uh, increase their fertility rates a little bit. Um, also relevant here is that if you look across high income countries at the moment, there does seem to be a fertility gap in that women are saying they want to have more children than they end up having. And it may be precisely because of that difficulty in combining work and family life that's causing that fertility gap. So where men are getting, um, where men are giving more support at home, that may allow women to close that fertility gap a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to ask you now about life history theory. So what is it and what are your thoughts about how it has been applied to humans? So life history theory is a theory in evolutionary biology about how um, re reproduction, growth and survival are organized across the life course, how energy is allocated between those three functions of reproduction, growth and survival um, in an optimal way to suit a particular ecology. It's been applied to humans, but unfortunately the human life history literature at the moment is a really horrible mess. That's because uh, how so? the theory has been extended far beyond um, its remit within evolutionary biology. A lot of what people interested in humans have done is extend life history theory to behavior. So beyond the traits of reproduction, growth and survival to behavioral traits. To some extent, that's reasonable because um, 
reproduction, growth and survival, um, the relationship between, for example, reproduction and survival may be mediated by behaviours such as risk-taking behaviour. There's some work in evolutionary biology suggesting that how risk-averse or risk-prone individuals are affects um, the organisation of reproduction and survival across the life course. So some of the extension of life history theory to behaviours, um, which has happened in, in humans, makes sense, but some of it doesn't. Um, for example, in some aspect, in some areas of psychology, particularly developmental psychology, there's an idea that a life history strategy encompasses not just reproduction, growth and survival, but also your mating strategy, essentially whether you want to uh, whether you get started on um, sexual activity relatively young and then have many sexual partners or whether mm -hmm. you get started on sexual activity later and have fewer sexual partners. There's an idea that those are two different mating strategies which form part of your overall life history strategy. But those kinds of mating strategies are not part of life history theory in evolutionary biology at all. And in fact, there's not much logical evidence to believe that those two mating strategies do fit neatly with life history strategies, growth, reproduction and survival. Um, so specifically in human life history research, there's a belief that harshness in the environment, high, high mortality risk in the environment leads to a fast life history strategy. Mm -hmm. In evolutionary biology, a fast life history strategy is one in which reproduction is relatively early, um, reproduction happens quite quickly, you have many offspring, but then um, senescence and death also occur relatively early. So a life history strategy like a mouse has. An individual that grows quickly has early reproduction, many offspring, but also has a short lifespan. Contrast that with a slow life history strategy like um, elephants have, where the animals grow slowly, they have late first reproduction, they produce relatively few offspring, but they also live long lives, they senesce at a slow rate and they, they die at older ages. There's an idea in human life history research that a fast life history strategy is associated with a mating strategy which involves early first sex and a high number of sexual partners. Logically for women, that makes no sense. For men, it might make sense because men can increase the number of offspring they produce if they um, mate with more women. Men, women, on the other hand, can't necessarily do that. Uh, for women, the number of children they produce is not linked to the number of sexual partners that they have. And in fact, in high fertility societies, as we've lived through most of our history, having a high number of sexual partners might actually reduce the number of children that women have because of the, the time costs involved in switching from one partner to another. If a woman wanted to do nothing but have many children, this is a very hypothetical scenario, obviously, it would make more sense for her to stick with, with a single partner so she doesn't have to go searching for um, other men to have children with. So the idea that a mating strategy is part of a life history strategy doesn't come out of evolutionary biology and doesn't make any logical sense for women, at least. Um, so there are some real problems in the way that life history theory has been applied to humans. It's been extended way beyond um, the theory in biology. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, not just the reproductive side of things, but is it also the case that when it comes to parenting behaviors and health traits, do they really cluster precisely into predicted fast and slow trajectories? 
There's also not a great deal of evidence for that. A lot of the human life history research hasn't really looked for that clustering. It's just made a lot of assumptions about uh, individual traits, such as you know, the age, the timing of puberty, the timing of birth sex, and just looked at, at those traits. The research that looks at the overall clustering of life history characteristics, such as um, the timing of, of maturation, the, the timing of puberty, uh, the number of children that you have, um, and so on, that suggests not very strong evidence that there is this very clear clustering of life history strategies. Humans are quite complex, our reproductive behavior is quite complex, there's a lot of variation in, in how we organize our reproductive lives. So when you look at the clustering of a large number of life history traits, the data isn't very clear that there is um, a clustering of fast and, and slow life history strategies. To some extent, you do see some correlations. For example, early age at first birth tends to be correlated with a higher number of overall children. So there is some evidence for some correlations that look like a, a fast life history strategy. But as you add in more and more life history outcomes, the evidence for tight clustering really breaks down. And actually, that makes sense from a biological point of view. There is research in evolutionary biology and that's starting to come out of human life history research too, that the uh, simplistic clustering of a fast and slow life history strategy um, is it, too simplistic. There are more axes of variation um, of our life histories than this simple fast, slow life history continuum. We organize our reproductive lives in, in, um, across other axes of variation as well. For example, the parental investment axis of variation um, in some of the life, human life history research, there's an assumption that a slow life history strategy goes alongside with heavy intensive parental investment, mm -hmm. but it's not really clear that that, that should be true biologically. Uh, it may be that, that uh, the parental investment is on a separate axis of variation. The fast slow life history strategy clustering in, with some, with regards to some traits, there's evidence for it, but it's far too simplistic to assume that all human life history falls neatly into those two clusters. Mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, and so, uh, just to talk about a possible example of uh, another factor that might play a role here, do cultural factors also have a role in life history strategies? Very much so, because uh, humans are a cultural species and cultural factors will affect things like the timing of our, our reproduction. So um, with a colleague, Laura Brown, we looked at, we looked to see if there was evidence for clustering um, in a UK data set of life history and parenting traits. Mm -hmm. And we also looked to see um, whether this clustering looks similar in British, white British born women and yeah. women of Pakistani origin in the UK, uh, who were a large enough ethnic group that we could contrast with, with the, the white British native born women. And what you see is, um, somewhat less evidence for clustering uh, in the Pakistani-born women than you do in, in the white women. Uh, and it might be that cultural factors come into play there. Uh, for example, um, age of marriage tends to be younger, for example, um, in the Pakistani women than, than the white women. So you have cultural factors that are affecting these life history traits, and that might affect some of the clustering that you see. Clusters may look different in different cultures. Uh, and so, uh, just one last question related to life history theory then. Uh, there's also life course theory, right? I mean, what is it and does it relate in any way to life history theory or not? So, 
in sociology in the social sciences people refer to um, a life course rather than a life history it means something relatively similar and it's the way people organize their the whole life course so there's an element of time there you know how people you know, when they get started on um, reproduction and so on but it's not just about reproduction growth and survival life course theory is a social science theory that's about not just um, the life history traits of reproduction growth and survival it also isn't based on evolutionary biology although so it's not much a lot of human life history research is also not really based on life history theory from biology but life course theory and life history theory they're both about how humans organize their life course but there there are a lot of differences in um, what underpins that and the outcomes that they're interested in but I think life history theory actual life history theory from evolutionary biology could be relevant for understanding the human life course um, and I did go to a conference some years ago organized by some sociologists and um, who were interested in bringing life history theory into into the life course too so there are interactions there between social and biological sciences mm -hmm. so let's get now into the evolutionary social sciences because I know that you have some criticisms of them uh, I mean, some more than others, I would imagine. But uh, before we get into the criticisms, what would you say are the strengths of the evolutionary social sciences and what basically they bring to the table when it comes to studying human behavior? I think it's important to recognize that we are a species that has evolved just as any other species has done. I think taking a long-term evolutionary perspective on our species is, is really important to understand where we come from, why our life history, our life course looks the way it does. Um, and I think that time depth component is really important in understanding our species. I think one of the good things about the evolutionary social sciences is that a lot of it is inherently interdisciplinary. It brings in evolutionary biology, but also anthropology or psychology or, or other social science disciplines too. And I think interdisciplinarity itself is inherently a good thing. There are many different disciplines that study humans, but they often study slightly different aspects of humans. So economics, economics, sociology, anthropology, they all look at slightly different aspects of humans. And I think it can be a bit dangerous just to look at one aspect of our species in isolation without considering the others. So I think interdisciplinarity is inherently a good thing. So one of the strengths of the evolutionary social sciences is that it is inherently interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. uh, and so getting into the criticisms, there's, there is one that has been put forth by people like H. Clark Barrett, who I've had on the show twice already, uh, he talks about a theory worship within the evolutionary social sciences. I, I mean, uh, and he says also that they do not pay enough attention to data. Uh, do you agree with that criticism? And if so, I mean, what does it mean exactly? So what Clark Barrett means by theory worship is that um, data is essentially used in the service of proving hypotheses or theories. So mm -hmm. some people come up with a theory, derive a hypothesis from that theory, and then go out and find data to prove that theory. Mm -hmm. That is quite common in evolutionary, some areas of evolutionary psychology, for example, and it's not specific to evolutionary psychology. It's a problem across many other disciplines too. But it is a real problem 
because it means that um, there will only be a very narrow focus on a particular area of interest. Uh, I'll use the example of father absence, um, as that we spoke about earlier. There's an idea in evolutionary psychology that father absence in childhood leads to an earlier age of puberty. And there are many studies in evolutionary psychology that show an association between father absence in childhood and earlier menarche for girls. I reviewed the literature with some colleagues a few years ago, and if you look at all of the literature on that topic, not just that produced by psychologists, you actually don't see universal associations between father absence in childhood and earlier puberty. And that might be for a whole range of reasons. Um, the nature of fatherhood differs between populations. Puberty is affected by many other factors, not just your social environment in childhood, but also your, but also your nutritional status. But in psychology, we have many, many of these associations, published studies showing this association. But in one of the papers that I found for that review, I also found uh, evidence that there were studies that had been done that didn't show that association, but hadn't ever been published. One of the problems with theory worship is the file draw effect. The only papers that get published are ones that prove that association between father absence and the timing of puberty. Anything else just you know, gets put in a file drawer and never sees the light of day. So theory worship distorts the scientific literature. It makes it look like associations are there that may in fact not be real. I don't think there is a universal association between father absence and earlier puberty for girls. It just looks like that in some of the psychological literature because of this theory worship effect. Mm -hmm. But it also means that we are quite limited in what we know about humans. Um, I think it's really important to, to do more descriptive work in the evolutionary social sciences to, to let the data speak for themselves, if you like. Um, so rather than simply coming up with a hypothesis and then forcing data to prove that hypothesis, let's just look at the data uh, and see what things are associated with, for example, the timing of puberty. Um, so I think it is really important to not use data solely in the services of proving particular theories, but to look at data much more descriptively, let them speak for themselves. Um, that will hopefully result in firstly less distortion in the scientific literature, but also a better idea about what the world is actually like out there, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is one criticism, but since you mentioned evolutionary psychology there, uh, and I know that you've been at least to some extent critical of evolutionary psychology, so uh, what are some of the other criticisms you have of the field, and do you think that they apply to uh, the entire field, or is it, for example, particular uh, theorists or publications or something like that? I think there are some other problems, particularly with some areas of evolutionary psychology. So I have been critical about evolutionary psychology, but I want to make clear that the principle behind evolutionary psychology, the idea that our psychology has evolved just as our physical bodies have done, is a perfectly sensible, perfectly reasonable um, assumption. It's just that some of the practice of evolutionary psychology is really problematic. Theory worship being one example, but it's not the only example. Another problem with the practice of a lot of evolutionary psychology is that it focuses exclusively on weird populations. So weird is this acronym that Joe Henrik and colleagues came up with a few years ago for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. So evolutionary psychology studies only a very narrow range of people. 
More problematically than that, they often generalize their studies to all of humans throughout all of human history. You cannot do a study on a handful of, of undergraduates and then assume your results apply across all of human history. You have to go out and, and look at the data, see whether um, what you're seeing in your undergraduate sample is replicated in other types of population too. So that focus on weird populations is a big problem in evolutionary psychology. Another problem is a lack of critical thinking and critical reflection in some areas of evolutionary psychology. Yeah. Again, this is true not just in psychology or the evolutionary social sciences, but uh, other disciplines have this problem too. What I mean by that is that disciplines aren't being sufficiently self-critical. There is some poor quality research in evolutionary psychology, and there isn't very much criticism often of that poor quality research because of this belief that we shouldn't be critical about our discipline. And I think some other problems with the lack of critical thinking relate to some extent, uh, relate as well to some extent to this idea of theory worship, where there are ideas in evolutionary psychology that aren't really critiqued enough. For example, this idea of biological essentialism, which is another big problem in evolutionary psychology, the idea uh, that, for example, males and females have evolved different characteristics, um, and that these are, that are innate, um, that there are innate behavioural differences, for example, between men and women that result from pressures of natural selection. Again, while it's not unreasonable to, to think that, there are many other reasons why you might get behavioural sex differences in populations. In some areas of evolutionary psychology, there isn't very much critical thinking about what alternative explanations for behavioural sex differences there might be. And I think this idea, this problem of biological essentialism is actually probably the biggest problem of the evolutionary social sciences. I think the evolutionary social sciences are much more valuable when they move away from this idea of biological essentialism, the idea that, that men and women are, have evolved different characteristics. And in even more problematic uh, research, the idea that racial groups have evolved different characteristics. I think we need to get rid of pretty much biological essentialism and instead use the evolutionary social sciences to understand more about variation in human populations. Another defining characteristic of our species is our behavioral variation, behavioral flexibility. To me, it's much more interesting to try and understand that behavioral variation and flexibility, which you can do through an evolutionary lens too. You just need to move away from these um, ideas of biological essentialism, which are often not very much critiqued in evolutionary psychology. And one reason there's such a problem is that in some parts of evolutionary psychology, at least, it seems that what people are doing is looking at the world around them, looking at behavioral sex differences, for example, in the world around them, and assuming that these have existed throughout all of human history and coming up with an explanation for those differences without thinking that behavioral sex differences in contemporary societies may be affected by culture and ecology and so on. I'll use a specific example here, that of hypergyny, this idea that women prefer to partner with men who are higher than them in education, in status, in income. This is a theory which is worshipped in some areas of evolutionary psychology. And if you look at a lot of data from contemporary Western populations, you do see at least some evidence, at least um, a few decades ago, that women were partnering up with men who earned more, who were more educated, who were higher in status. Just because you see that in contemporary Western societies doesn't mean that that's an evolved 
that women have an evolved preference to always partner hypergenously with men. Um, and in fact, if you look cross-culturally and in very contemporary societies, you see that women are not always partnering hypergenously. Some demographers were interested in shifts in educational attainment by gender in recent decades in modern societies. Women are now often much more educated than men in contemporary Western societies. Some demographers were interested in these trends. Demographers have also observed that women in the past tended to partner with more highly educated men. And they wanted to see what happened as women gained educational attainment. Would it be that women refused to partner with less well-educated men or not? And what the data very clearly showed is that as women become more educated than men, the proportion of partnerships in a relationship where the woman is more highly educated than her male partner increases, which isn't really too surprising. You know, people are adaptable. As patterns of educational change, attainment change, so do patterns of partnership. And the demographers actually titled that paper The End of Hypergamy. So I think that is an example where the evolutionary psychologists have been led astray by their theory worship and their lack of critical thinking. They've looked at a behavioral sex difference in contemporary societies and simply assumed that was an evolved preference. If you actually look at the data and think about alternative explanations, women don't seem to have a fixed, rigid preference for only ever partnering with men who are higher in them in factors such as education. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and uh, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I guess that when, when we are trying to have a good understanding of human behavior and where it comes from and the factors that play a role in it, I mean, of course, we have to look into our uh, evolutionary uh, evolved psychology, but we, we also have to add things, at least things like ecology and culture, right, at the very least, I guess. Absolutely. And my own discipline um, within the evolutionary social sciences, human behavioral ecology, is about how human behavior adapts to particular ecological circumstances or varies according to ecological conditions. That's entirely an evolutionary theory. Behavioral ecology is a discipline in evolutionary biology, um, as well as um, one of the things that, that many organisms, not just humans, have evolved is the capacity to respond to the, to the environment in adaptive ways. Mm -hmm. Again, you can use the timing of puberty as a good example here. Uh, women go through puberty or girls go through puberty earlier where they have access to, to more food and to, to more medical care where they're, where they're in you know, better body condition. That's an adaptive response to the ecology, but it's an evolved adaptive response. It makes sense to capitalize on good environments and get started on reproduction earlier uh, if you have access to that good environment. So you absolutely have to take ecological factors into account when you're thinking about human behavior, but also as a cultural species, you also need to look at how cultural factors affect our behavior. And at least some of that, that culture you can also explain within an evolutionary framework. It's not that mm -hmm. you know, cultural explanations for, for human behavior are in opposition to evolutionary explanations at all. They can be entirely compatible. Mm -hmm. uh, so at a certain point there you mentioned biological essentialism and I think that that makes a good bridge to our last two topics, the last two topics of our conversation today. So talking about eugenics, uh, and since you come from uh, human demography, do you think that demography, at least historically, has had at least certain ties with the eugenics movement, particularly in the 20th century? 
Yeah, so eugenics is the ideology that the that human populations can be improved through selective reproduction or, or other policies. It's fundamentally based on the principle that there are hierarchies of humans, that some humans are inherently genetically better than others. Demography was very influenced by eugenic ideology early in the 20th century because of the idea that human populations can be improved through selective reproduction, selective fertility, differential fertility. So eugenicists were very interested in fertility data. Uh, eugenic ideology was influential in um, changing how fertility data in the UK was collected, for example. But it also stimulated the academic discipline of demography. So the very first academic post in demography in the UK was at the LSE. And it was essentially started because the then director of the LSE, William Beveridge, was interested in eugenics. He set biology specifically for uh, research to look into the um, interaction between essentially biology and social factors in our species because of his interest in eugenics. Mm -hmm. And that social biology department was partly responsible for the setting up of a post in demography because demography is of interest to eugenicists too. Demography wasn't the only discipline that was influenced by eugenics in the early 20th century. Psychology, genetics, uh, statistics too were all influenced by this really quite mainstream ideology early in the 20th century. And do you think that recently we've been uh, seeing an academic resurgence of eugenics? And if so, how does it manifest? The short answer is yes, I think we have. Uh, the longer answer is that eugenics was quite mainstream early in the 20th century. It is important to recognize that eugenics always involves taking people's reproductive rights away. Eugenics is about deciding who gets to, to have children and who doesn't, or who should have more children, who should have fewer children, mm -hmm. which is interfering in people's reproductive lives. The international community at the moment um, from a human rights perspective says it's very important that each individual should be able to freely choose the number and the timing of their children. That commitment to human rights and reproductive rights wasn't really there in the early 20th century. So eugenics did involve um, the implementation of some government policies, for example, compulsory sterilization, which made it legal to sterilize people again without their consent. If they were if they were deemed to have undesirable traits, traits that were thought to worsen the quality of the human population. So eugenic ideology involves taking away people's reproductive rights and it eventually resulted in the Nazi regime not just taking away people's reproductive rights but taking away people's lives by trying to exterminate entire groups of so-called undesirable people. Mm -hmm. So that was one reason why eugenics fell out of favor during the 20th century, the recognition that it, it violated people's uh, human rights. But also it fell out of favor in academia because it became clear that it wouldn't really work from a scientific point of view. You can't really selectively breed human populations because the traits that eugenicists are interested in, intelligence being one of them, it's a very complex trait. We have no idea what would happen if we tried to, to selectively breed for higher intelligence. It would really be a dumb thing to do. So eugenics did fall out of favor in academia during the 20th century both because it's not going to work, but also because it's associated with human rights abuses. It never really went away. Uh, in the 1960s, for example, a journal, Mankind Quarterly, was, was set up specifically with people, by people with um, interest in eugenics and funded by the Pioneer Fund, which was a fund which funds eugenic um, research. 
They set up the journal Mankind Quarterly because it was getting more difficult to publish research on eugenic themes in academia. So later in the 20th century, eugenic ideology never left academia, but it became fringe. It fell out of mainstream academic publications, at least explicitly. Towards the end of the 20th century and in the 21st century, it is, however, beginning to emerge back into the mainstream. You are beginning to see, not that recently, over the last few decades, quite explicit discussions of eugenics um, and selective breeding, um, in particularly psychology journals. And I will actually use go back to life history theory to give a specific example here. So in the 1990s, a psychologist called Philip Rushton came up with what he called differential K theory. He claimed that this was a theory based in evolutionary biology that looked a bit like life history theory does now. This was in the 90s when life history theory wasn't so widely used in biology. Mm -hmm. But what differential K theory did was to line three human races, um, blacks, whites and Asians, along a continuum, something like the fast slow continuum that is in, exists in evolutionary biology. But Rushton's differential K theory, um, although it incorporated life history traits like the timing of, of first birth, it also incorporated many behavioral traits um, and also other traits like intelligence and also the size of genitals. So what Rushton says is that the, um, the three races can be lined up along this continuum from R-selected people to K-selected people, where black populations are R-selected. They not only have relatively early reproduction and many children, but they also have many behavioral traits such as high aggressiveness, low cooperativeness, low intelligence. They also have large penises. The white and Asian populations are more K-selected, according to Rushton. They have the opposite characteristics being higher intelligence, more cooperative, less aggressive, and so on. Mm -hmm. That is clearly not a biological theory. What Rushton was doing was claiming that there was a scientific basis for racist tropes that have been around for a very long time. For example, that black men are of low intelligence and have large genitals. So Rushton's um, theory was, it was, um, it's basically motivated by eugenic ideology, that the idea that you can line up the human races along a continuum from inferior races to superior races. So that was an example of how eugenic ideology began to resurge in the academic literature in the 1990s. And unfortunately, Rushton's research has not gone away. It was very heavily criticized at the time by anthropologists, biologists, psychologists, because it makes no sense whatsoever. The data he put together to try and prove this, this theory also was, was very poor quality. For example, a lot of his data on genital size comes from pornography, which is not a random representative sample of male genital size. So what Rushton did was very, very bad science and it was heavily critiqued at the time. And his work was largely ignored in areas like um, evolutionary anthropology, for example. People knew that his work was terrible and simply ignored it. You will, however, see a lot of citations to Rushton in the evolutionary science literature right now because his theory was resurrected in the 2000s by a psychologist called Aurelio Figueroa, who renamed differential K theory the fast, slow continuum of life history strategies, claiming there is evidence from evolutionary biology that you can cluster uh, not the human races. He moved away from races and applied this at the individual level, but he said you can cluster individuals um, on all of these behavioral traits um, from people who are, are selected or who have fast life histories to people who are case selected or who have slow life histories. It wasn't immediately obvious um, 
or at least when I first saw the, that uh, fast, slow continuum of life history strategies produced by Figurado, which he measures using a psychometric scale, when I first saw that psychometric approach to life history strategies, it wasn't at all obvious to me that it was based on Rushton at all. The approach made absolutely no sense to me because it seemed to have nothing to do with life history theory from biology, which Figurado claims it does. But it, it, um, it isn't always clear in Figurado's papers that the psychometric approach to fast, low life history strategies is, is basically differential K theory because it wasn't initially applied to race. Recently, Figurado has applied it to race. Um, but that's an example of where eugenics is, I think, really resurging in the evolutionary social sciences. Rushton's uh, racist, scientific racist differential K theory is now thriving in the evolutionary social sciences because many people use this psychometric approach to fast, slow life history strategies without realizing its origins um, in scientific racism. And it's particularly problematic because although it isn't usually applied to race, it is quite often applied to class. So what Figurado's, a lot of Figurado's research says is that people living in harsh environments, which in human populations is often operationalized as people who have uh, a lower socioeconomic position, mm -hmm. have fast, are selective life history strategies. They are promiscuous, uncooperative. They have cognitive differences from um, people who live in benign environments, who are people who are of higher socioeconomic position. So Figurado has basically reinvented Rushton scientific racism as scientific classism. Um, it's also important to note that both Rushton and Figurado believe their, uh, their continuums are genetically determined. So there are genetic differences between races or genetic differences between classes. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of how eugenic ideology is really thriving in the evolutionary social sciences in the 21st century. Although I think a lot of people using the psychometric approach aren't aware of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, very quickly, just before we continue, I have seen that we've already reached an, reached an hour. Uh, could you just please give me a little bit more time just for us to cover the national uh, IQ databases uh, question and also the question about mm, misogynistic views in academia, please? Yeah, so the National IQ database is another example of the resurgence of eugenic ideology. Um, mm -hmm. The National IQ database was uh, has been created since the 1990s by a psychologist called Richard Lynn, mm -hmm. who um, also essentially wants to prove a hierarchy of human races. The National IQ database claims to be uh, an estimate of the National IQ, the intelligence of nation states worldwide, which he has put together with some colleagues by trawling the psychological literature for cognitive tests and using this data to generate a single national average IQ for different countries worldwide. Okay. He started doing this in the 1990s, um, and he's continued to produce the database today, which he makes open access so other people can use it. It is very clearly not science because it's, firstly, the construction is very, very bad science. Secondly, it has never been improved, although it has been intensively critiqued over the last 30 years. And thirdly, Richard Lynn has used it very widely to promote explicit eugenic ideology. And he really does this very explicitly, um, including in the pages of 
scientific journals, um, including those uh, which are published by the big, big publishers such as Elsevier and Springer. So these are journals in psychology which will publish Richard Lynn's um, ideas about eugenic ideology. Mm -hmm. What this National IQ database claims is that essentially black populations have much lower IQs than white and Asian populations. In fact, he claims that the national average IQ of sub-Saharan Africa as a whole is 70, whereas it's something like 100 or more for white and uh, Asian countries. Clearly, the idea that the entire continent of sub-Saharan Africa could have an average IQ of 70 is absurd because that is on the cutoff of intellectual impairment. Um, people who have an IQ of between 70 and 75 are typically considered to have mild intellectual impairment. Mm -hmm. So to say that the entire continent of sub-Saharan Africa has an average IQ on the verge of intellectual impairment implies that very large numbers of people on that continent have moderate or severe intellectual impairment. They, they cannot get through their daily lives without help. That is a truly absurd belief. Obviously, people in sub-Saharan Africa are not on average intellectually impaired. But Richard Lynn has clung to this IQ for Sub-Saharan Africa since 1991. Interestingly, uh, the average IQ in Sub-Saharan Africa was 70 in 1991 when he first produced uh, some version of this data set using far fewer studies than in later versions and in every subsequent revision of his um, national IQ data set, despite the fact that these um, that the, the revisions of the data set did include different samples. Um, and supposedly were improvements on previous versions, but sub-Saharan African IQ has remained unchanged at 70, highly unlikely from a scientific point of view. Mm -hmm. So the National IQ database, it's not scientists, science, it's another example of scientific racism. Um, and it's another example of the resurgence of eugenic ideology in academia. Worryingly... Uh, yeah, go ahead, yes, and then I will ask a follow-up. Yeah. Worryingly, the database has been widely used by um, people who are not Richard Lynn um, in a variety of different studies which have been published in the, the academic literature. Some of them clearly also have the intention of um, proving that there is a hierarchy of races with certain races being inferior to others, eugenic ideology and other words. But many papers are um, uh, produced by people who are who are clearly not deliberately trying to produce to promote racist ideology they're just using the national iq data set because they're not aware of how bad it is of, of how flawed it is so richard lynn has been quite successful in sneaking this eugenic ideology into the the mainstream academic literature because scientists have been a bit careless about the, the data set that they're using and not really realizing how poor quality it is and how it has been explicitly used to promote eugenic ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I would just like to ask you a question about uh, that, about the work of Richard Lynn and others. Uh, even if these national IQ data sets were good, even if these IQs were really well calculated, would that even correspond to racial differences? Because I, I mean, looking, calculating national IQs across the continent of Africa and then across the other continents, uh, since the concept of race from a biological, uh, genetic and anthropological perspective makes no sense, even if you had the correct IQs, that wouldn't point to any racial differences. No, it wouldn't for two reasons. One, as you say, that they're, they're, um, 
the consent the scientific consensus is that race is not biologically or genetically meaningful there is clearly variation between uh, human populations but you can't neatly separate um, genetically or biological races we perceive race we socially perceive race mm -hmm. So race is is real in that it has actual effects on society. Um, people who are perceived to be particular races are treated differently, for example, in, in many societies. So race is a social reality, but it's not a biological reality. You can't neatly define races according to biological or genetic clusters. Also, how people perceive race differs across societies. Clear evidence that it's a social reality, it's not a biological reality. But also, you say that if the IQs had been calculated correctly for each nation, the whole concept of creating a database of national IQs makes no sense because you cannot measure, you cannot come up with a single number for cognitive ability that's comparable across all human nations because human nations are so variable. For example, IQ tests, cognitive testing, relies to some extent on, on typically, typically relies to at least some extent on abstract thinking, which means that if you have some kind of formal education, you're typically much better at these cognitive tests than if you have no formal education whatsoever. Yes. Some countries, formal education is not universal. There is evidence actually from some of the studies that Richard Lynn includes in his database that um, either cognitive tests couldn't be given to certain children, for example, in rural communities where they didn't have much formal education, or that the results that you get from cognitive tests are really not comparable across populations because of this influence of things like formal education on cognitive tests. The whole concept of a national IQ database makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so getting into our last topic then, and I guess that you would also classify these under the rubric of biological essentialism, at least to some extent. So uh, human sex differences, uh, there are people who study these and then uh, some of them use them to explain or to come up with uh, theories, ideas about representativeness in academia, some of them make claims about the supposed impact that women have been having across different academic fields and also justifications or explanations for the gender pay gap. Uh, what do you make of that? What are your thoughts on it? I think there are real problems with looking at contemporary societies, looking at behavioural differences in contemporary societies and assuming that they are the result of evolved differences between the sexes. Mm -hmm. I don't have, as an evolutionary social scientist, I don't have a particular problem with the idea that there are some evolved sex differences, but they are likely going to be pretty small. On the whole, we're a, very, we're a species that has a lot of behavioural flexibility. Differences between the sexes are probably not going to be of great magnitude or of great significance even where they exist. And certainly looking at things like the gender pay gap or the representation of women in different academic fields, you, you simply can't assume that's due to evolved preferences um, for different academic disciplines or to earn different amounts of money. Although, unfortunately, some evolutionary social scientists have tried to make that claim. It's clear that in contemporary human society, things like culture is going to make a big difference. And there was a very nice paper published recently by some 
um, psych evolutionary psychologists who do very high quality evolutionary psychology, um, pointing out that the, the gender differences in, um, in, work, in the workplace, for example, could be explained through cultural factors. Modern societies are quite complex societies. Uh, we live, there's a lot of division of labor between um, different jobs. We live in, uh, in very large groupings of people. Um, and it can be quite hard to uh, work out how to, to navigate those complex societies, which may mean that we lie on, rely on cultural factors quite a lot to determine, for example, what um, job to go into, what academic discipline to study. And their fundamental point was that you can't ignore those cultural factors which may lead to gender differences in employment um, and gender pay gaps when you're trying to understand that those gender differences uh, in the contemporary workplace. So I think evolutionary psychology needs to be much more critical about its default assumption that any sex difference you see in contemporary society is the result of evolved preferences. Many other factors are at play. And uh, just a quick final question. Uh, do you think that, uh, or what would you think would be the ways for scientists, people in academia to try to uh, counter, for example, the resurgence of eugenics, or in the particular case of sex differences, some of these uh, narratives? I think we need to be much more critical about the research that we're doing. Um, and also talk more to different disciplines. I think going back to my point at the beginning, interdisciplinary research is really important. And one reason it's important is because it can shake us out of these siloed ways of thinking. Um, it may be that some evolutionary psychology um, is focused very much on evolved differences just because that's what their discipline does and they don't think they don't interact enough with other disciplines that talk about other reasons why you may get evolved, why you may get behavioral sex differences. So I think more interdisciplinary, more interdisciplinary research is really important, more interaction between evolutionary and social sciences um, and more, more critical thinking in the discipline. Is it really likely that these patterns that we see in the world are the result of evolved preferences or should we be thinking about um, other other factors that may be creating those differences as well. One final point, we also need to be very, very critical about people like Richard Lynn and Philip Rushton, who appear to be very deliberately misusing science to promote political ideology. There hasn't been enough criticism of those bad faith actors in the field. And we absolutely have to be critical of those people and reject what they are doing entirely if the evolutionary social sciences are to thrive. Mm -hmm. Great. So, Dr. Sir, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Uh, yeah, I have a web page. All of my papers are um, open access on that, that web page. So, if they search for their name, for my name rather, hopefully they will find me relatively easily. Great. I'm also leaving a link to our first interview in the description box of this one. And Dr. Sir, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much again for the invitation. Thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much again for the invitation. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. 
This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Pereira Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Triago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Librant, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tam Amal, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Desaraúzo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlos Tazevski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hallman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Panos Cortesos, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Jorge Stéphanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Holt Erickbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gressis, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, Zizar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.